0: This program is brought to you by Joule, sous vide by Chef Steps. Joule takes the guesswork out of cooking. Learn more at chefsteps.com slash J O
1: U L E. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member supported food radio network, broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food. And beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. On the show each week, I interview someone who inspires me and who I ask to share their successes and challenges on their way to accomplishing their dreams. Today's guest is someone who's incredibly accomplished and thoughtful as a storyteller, a chef, and she happens to also be a host on Heritage. Mm-hmm. Her show, which, of which she is the co <laughs> the co-host, is called Why Food. And today she's going to teach us about why food for her and also something about VR and AR, which I you know, I studied what um, you've put down, and I can't wait to like hear more about it in person and share it with all the listeners because I think there's so much confusion out there. Um, she's fresh off a tour with her immersive dining experience called Asian in America. Welcome, Jenny Dorsey. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's fun to be like a host, but on the other side, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sitting in the guest chair instead of my host chair. <laughs> it's you're like, sitting in a comfy chair, <laughs> you're, it's, but it's not comfortable, right? And you're on top of a multi serapi that hides like a broken down chair with yeah. b- a bad foam. Yeah. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's fine. <laughs> fine. Cuz no one can see us. <laughs> so, I love that your the show that you do is called Why Food because when I took a something of a dive into your life and thinking, I realized that that question of why penetrates everything that you do. Like Mm -hmm. Challenging assumptions that people have about minorities, challenging questions that people have, or assumptions that people make about food, um, success, vulnerability, everything that seems to come your way, you put under a microscope and ask that question why. Yeah. So, I'm going to start with the biggest why, um, which is why food for you? Because I know that you uh, you went to business school, you went to Columbia Business School, and you decided not to do that. And you decided to veer into the path of food. And And food is really more of a, a, a practice for you. I mean, you could say that, um, yes, you thought about food like 80% of the time. So you're <laughs> like, okay, maybe that's what I should do. But you didn't really take it in the direction that so many people do when they decide that they think about food all the time. And you know, decide to you just to be a chef, right? So you worked at um, with Dominique Crenn. You worked at a Terry You worked in incredibly fancy, high-end restaurants, and that could be why food. Yeah. But you really chose um, a different direction in food because it's an exploration of a why question for you. Yeah. So can you just talk a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, um, I think one of the things I realized. About myself uh, relatively early on, uh, especially during the Columbia Business School days, is that if I didn't really like what I was doing, even if I tried to lie to myself that I did, um, it would always be reflected in my actions. Um, things as small as like just showing up late to class every day. You know, it's like I can per- just be earlier like of course everyone's late once in a while but like consistently being more tardy as the semester went on it was just really a, a reflection of I just didn't want to go and I, I started kind of seeing that in all aspects of my life um, at Columbia and also just Um, prior to that I was a management consultant so all aspects of my job I I didn't like talking to the clients I didn't like the job I was doing and I would see it manifest in you know bad punctuality and other things but also in the way I treated myself um I got into like a binge eating problem I had to go to the hypnotherapist to try and get out of binge eating Wait, wait wait pause there (laughs) did that work because I um I'm not sure because at the same time, after the hypnotherapist, I also changed. I went to culinary school. Mm -hmm. So now I I don't know, too many
2: variables. (laughs) Um, Uh, A data scientist at work. Like, I can't tell you. It could be one or it could be the other. Right. And you were, um, that eating was just to block out.
3: Yeah. Everything. It was kind of like uh, I could focus on something for the minute. Um, So I would not, I would kind of like binge and then purge. Well, I wasn't throwing up, but I would just not eat for like a day and a half. And then I'd be starved. Um, And then I would reach in my fridge and cook like six salmon steaks and eat all of them. Um, I'm amazed I actually fit that much in my stomach sometimes. But it was like, it was just... Looking for something to cling on to because I could tell like I was deeply unhappy but didn't actually want to face it, um, and I think a lot of people find their own thing that they do.
2: Did all that make eating make you even sadder?
3: Yeah, because then you not only it's like you're gaining weight but also you're not eating because it's enjoyable. It's like a it's just like how people don't smoke because it's really enjoyable. It's you feel like you don't have any option and so it really takes the the you know the all the like. Pleasures of having a good meal because it feels like you're
2: addicted to this, like chewing something essentially. That to me makes it even more interesting that you chose food as your medium (laughs) because that version of it was not healthy or good for you. And then you, but you love food. Yeah. So
3: I think realizing that like food is always this thing I had a bad relationship with, even though by all accounts, I loved it so much. Um, that had me a little bit re-examine like what what am I doing wrong with my life um you know why is it that I have a bad relationship with something that I love but quote unquote you know have the successful career or something that I don't even enjoy um
2: and it's a how did you sort that out because that seems like a gigantic um (laughs) conflict
3: um I well part of it was simply waking up and being unhappy I think that's a you know, it doesn't take um, too long for you to like day after day, you wake up and just feel this like malaise. Mm-hmm. Like, you're like, I don't want to be anywhere. I don't want to do anything. Like, something is wrong. And it's not just a little bit of like, I'm having a bad week or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think partially at some point, like, I realized that I was running away from myself a little bit. Like, I, I was in therapy and I was, you know, trying to examine other parts that were wrong with my life, like problems with my family and all of that. But, I could tell every time my therapist was like, why don't you think about yourself? I was like, no, 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 (laughs) You know, like you, and I think of enough of that at some point, like maybe you don't want to do it with a therapist, but you can see quite starkly that there's issues with your internal self that you have to address some way or another. Um, For me, I like, I wrote in a journal a little bit. I just kind of started spending a little bit more me time um, and realizing that as an introvert, I needed to stop being out so much because I think that clouded my judgment a lot and start just spending time like at home on a Friday night and just sit there and think, which sounds really
2: fun. But um, actually sounds very hard because (laughs) the, the cultural pressure to go out and have a good time, but if that's not a good time for you, then it's actually not a good time.
3: Exactly. And especially as a, I think in your 20s and, I mean, recently I read this book, um, Quiet by Susan Kane, which I, I wish I had read earlier. It's all about, you know, how introverts, you get stuck in an extroverted world and then you feel like the things that you need to do to restore yourself and all of that are bad and you'd never do them. And I think once I actually kind of took the step to take to just take some time for myself or, you know, turn down a few of those parties or whatever, I was just turned 21. So, you know, I felt a lot of pressure to go out and drink. But like after just saying no, I started feeling a little bit more empowered. And then I'm like, well, I could say no to that. Maybe I
1: could do, maybe I could do
2: something else, you know, like little baby steps. And then you did turn to food and you got a culinary degree. Mm-hmm. And you're not a fan of culinary degrees.
3: Yeah, I have. I, mean, I have a really hard time with culinary schools. Um, I was just at the Culinary Institute of America doing a demo, so you know, I I love them for many things, and then I. But I also see them as. Um, at least in their current state, I don't think that they're doing a service to the problems that we have in the food industry. One of them is that they're mostly for part, for profit. So it's really expensive. And the, the realistic job prospects of a lot of people who go into culinary school are, you know line cook and you're making, what, $15 an hour to start, how are they ever going to pay off their loans? Um, my culinary school education was $30,000. Um, now it's gone up. Um, at the same culinary school I went to, it's $40,000. That's insane, you know? And um, it's, it's supposed to be like a vocational school, and yet it's being billed as essentially a liberal arts college. Um, I think there's just something reflexively wrong with that. Um, besides that, I also find a lot of problems in the way the curriculum has been taught and not changed for years. Um, It's very, very French focused, which like I, you know, I sometimes make fun of French cuisine, but it's like, I have nothing against French cuisine, but it shouldn't be the only thing that's taught in culinary schools. And essentially the taught as the cuisine that usurps all the other gastronomic cuisines of the world. Um, It's the only techniques you learn. It's the only ingredients you know about, you know, to this day, I can tell you more about Normandy than I can tell you about most regions in China where I'm from, which I mean, Sure, maybe that's just not my focus, but it's like a little bit like I should at least have some idea on things or at least maybe should be able to choose
2: a path in culinary school and say, I want to learn more about X, Y or Z. I think that's a great opportunity to um, reimagine uh, culinary education, because if you think of the great food cultures of the world, um, French is one of many, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So, like, I would love to learn about velveting, or I would love to learn about, uh, you know, tandoor, or I would love to learn about this vast variety of um, techniques. And at this point in our food culture, they all overlap. So if you're, you know, if you decide to open up a Korean restaurant, um, you would do Korean crossed with all these things that have been inputs into your mind to make this delicious it's all about the food right you just want these tools to allow you to um to explore and make them delicious yeah and for i think you
3: learn to appreciate them when they're presented to you especially as a budding student in like kind of you know in a grandiose way when all of cuisines are kind of presented equally you can you feel uh like all of them are important and so you can kind of feel like you can gravitate towards Onto something naturally versus almost feeling like, oh well, it's inferior if I pick this
2: over the other. And some of your work has uh, revolved around this notion of um, minority and your feelings as a Chinese American. Um, well, actually, coming here from Shanghai, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, what? How did you make? How did it make you feel? Or why is? Uh, sort of a cooking and minority sort of in conflict right now?
3: Um, I think right now, because there's so much interest in other cuisines or ethnic cuisines, we're seeing a, a huge rise in Asian food. I think, was it last year that Food and Wine um, said, like, Filipino food is, like, the newest trend or something? Um, and it's, we're kind of at this crossroads where I think a lot of minority, like, this, you know, first or second generation minority children are starting to see this surge of mass popularity of their cuisines that they knew and loved growing up. But yet at the same time, when they were growing up, they were not cool and they were decidedly shameful or embarrassing or weird. And they're kind of grappling and starting to vocalize like how it feels to, you know, feel a little used, like you're convenient Um, If you're cool now, but when you aren't cool, like the fact that Filipino food in and of itself can be a trend is a little bit offensive. Um, So I think people uh, in the like minority children are starting to voice that like, hey, this shouldn't be the way we talk about my food or my culture. And I don't stand for this. I think when we are younger, you internalize a lot of it. And you also don't know how to speak for yourself. You don't know how the world works. Um, but now I think as people, millennials are in their 20s and 30s, they're like, wait, we can we can change this. We can be better. And I want, I feel like we can demand to be better. Um, there is a little bit of a changing of the guard scenario. If you just look at the fact that um, Mike Bauer from SF Chronicle like retired And he's probably going to be taken over by a a female of color. Like that's you can start to see like you know things are changing, and with that, people are I think are just getting more empowered to like say something and speak their minds.
2: Okay, so let's talk about you because that was all (laughs) like we and they and but in fact, um, you know, as part of what you create in the kitchen is commentary on um, the way that the assumptions that have been fed to people from kitchens in America. So for you, what is it that you're doing to challenge those assumptions? And how did it make you feel when it was your food that people were, co-opting is not the right word, but people would pigeonhole you and say, oh, well, these people who are coming out of cooking school, they can go work for Jean-Georges. And you, why don't you work at this Chinese restaurant? Yeah, Or you're going to cook Asian food, right? And you're like, um, I actually am more comfortable with a souffle than I am with, like, wok cooking. So, like, in your own experience, like, how has this played out?
3: Um, I think one of the big things I've learned about myself is um, after working in fine dining, I became really addicted to this idea of like, if I make this like perfect one plate sort of thing, then I will somehow become like a better chef or a better human. And through the process of learning more about my art is like, I think I actually feel the most represented in my food when it is kind of this like more food art commentary and when it's like deeply personal and has a specific topic that I want to talk about. So for example, one of the dishes, that I created earlier this year and served is called um, That's Disgusting. It's part of the Privilege Series I've, I've been calling it and it's served in a an actual like little metal lunchbox and there's a little name tag on one side and it has that like hello my name is tag but the name is just it's called Disgusting and like big capital letters, um, and in the lunchbox itself is all these ingredients that used to be very uncool, you know, garlic chives or eel or um, uh, oysters, actually, uh, sweet potato, all that stuff, and then bugs, and now it's kind of, like, hip and trendy, and it's almost, it's like this weird, like, well, you, you not you in one particular person, but many people felt um, in school that it was okay to, you know, be like oh that's gross or kind of shame you for that and now like look at how things are like what what does this mean and how can we teach the next next generation to be more thoughtful and em- empathetic children um and also I th- I think what works is that all of us are um complicit at some point in our lives for you know upholding stereotypes saying nasty things and ups etc and just taking making people take a hard look at themselves and be like yeah maybe I did that at some point but I can be better. It's not like you did something bad and now you're just a terrible person forever. Um, how do you use that in like a positive way and be like, okay, I want to improve. I understand what you're saying. I can, I can feel how much this hurt you and now like, let me do something about it. It's, it's scary because it feels vulnerable and I, you know, and people judge and you can watch their faces. It's always like a, you share something about yourself, but I feel like I'm doing the right thing.
2: So you talk a lot about vulnerability and being uncomfortable uh, or making other people feel uncomfortable, which you think is a good thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Tell me why. Um, I think it's easy to be comfortable because, you know, we're always searching for like that stability in our lives. That's kind of like well, we're naturally like, you know, we're creatures of habit. Um, and it is really hard to get you to like see something differently um, unless you are come out of that comfort zone. If you feel a little uncomfortable, I think that's when you start reevaluating some of the things that you, beliefs that you might hold or things you might, you know, think or see about other people. And I think a lot of times the uncomfort stems from the fact that you realize you might be wrong. And we hate, you know, we hate being wrong. Um, I was just reading about how it's like you, Uh, you will naturally start coming up with all these excuses as to, like, why your opinion isn't wrong, whether it's blaming it on other people, blaming on their circumstance and all this stuff. And I think that's such a natural and interesting uh, human element. But at the same time, like, what can I do to try and break that cycle? I think about um, when I was young, my parents... Um, it's ironic, especially with the Asian American case in Harvard right now, they were very racist towards black Americans. We lived in the Bronx. And I remember they would say all these things about their grocery stores and all this stuff. And I kind of like didn't even I never even reevaluated that until I was well into my 20s. And was like working with black coworkers who were telling me about their growing up and the food deserts they lived in. And I was like, wow, that was so insane. Like I didn't, I felt so uncomfortable and I didn't say anything. And I kind of went home and just felt guilty. But like it it spurred me to reevaluate some of the things in my past that it just kind of took as how the world is or assumed. Um, so yeah, overall, I think it's a good thing. It's the only way you're, we're going to like progress as people. And how have you made
2: other people uncomfortable? Uh,
3: <clears throat> I think um, the lunchbox just always makes people really uncomfortable because it's almost like realizing for the first time for, for many who might have grown up on like Lunchables or other like very acceptable lunches that... It, when someone judges you before you've even opened your mouth, like you open the container and you see this judgment, it like it shocks you. It makes you feel awful.
2: Um, so I, it's a, <laughs> And you can't see, be- but she's smiling. <laughs> <laughs> it
3: it, just, it like, just makes you feel bad. And like no. and you can see people's reactions. They like open the box and they're like, oh, you know, like this it's like a visceral reaction. Um, and I think that's great. Um, I also think that with the Asian in America series where people are um, in headsets watching a, a, vi- a virtual reality accompaniment, which we'll talk about in a little bit, yes, because they can't escape the the headset. I mean, I guess they could take it off, but nobody does. They're like really in there and they're listening to the narration and they're listening to kind of the, that's a little bit of that pain, a little bit of that embarrassment, that shame. like just in a very confined space in your mind. And I think it really makes them feel it, even if that particular memory might not be a one-for-one match with what they experienced. Um, it seems it seems very close, like literally close. Um, so
2: yeah, I, I think it just like re- makes people react in a very emotional way. So Shame is another word that comes up a lot. It seems you've felt a lot of shame and you deal with a lot of shame and you want to get out of feeling all that <laughs> shame. Um, and that's part of the you know, your the work that you do. Where, where do you think that shame comes from? Like, do you have like a strong memory of being shamed beyond the lunchbox? Um, I think
3: it's, it's so much like the way I see shame is it's like a weird internal manifestation of like guilt and not feel and powerlessness. Um, and so the lunchbox, of course, but also just like little things that I'll hear everything from, um, food related things. Um, growing up, I went to a camp, uh, like a summer camp sort of thing. And I wrote like a, a short essay about how I didn't know how to use chopsticks. So I, I grabbed um, or I, I didn't, know how to, didn't know how to use a fork. So I was using chopsticks. So I got this piece of ham and I didn't know what to do with it um, because you cut it. Yes. <laughs> uh, but usually, you know, with chopsticks, you're eating like out of a bowl. So I just, just stabbed it with this fork and I was trying to kind of eat it. And the teacher, she was so offended, she runs over, she grabs it out of my hand, and she's waving it in the air so everyone can see for, for a bunch of like first graders or something. I don't know how, it's how six, yeah. Um, and she's like, We don't eat like this, like kind of like oh. you versus me, you know, we have manners kind of thing. Um, and shortly thereafter, I was eating a chocolate chip cookie. Um, that one of the other parents had brought in. And um, I was like chewing with my mouth open, which is very much like a Chinese thing as a sign of appreciation. And she's like, that's disgusting. Like, why don't your parents teach you any manners? Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of like food related things definitely happened when I was younger. But as I've um, grown as a professional, like a lot of unfood related things as well being a woman kind of being shamed for you know being silent about especially with this me too movement where there were times where I felt uncomfortable but you feel like you couldn't say anything or even little passive-aggressive things that um, other men have said to me because they're like oh we won't you know you're young what do you know especially in the very male-dominated chef field um and you feel Ashamed as if, like, I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe I shouldn't even have had that opinion. I think there's still, as women, dealing with kind of, like, at what point do you use that shame and be like, this is not okay for me to internalize anymore. I should talk about it. I shouldn't like I should have to carry
2: this around with me. And uh, vulnerability and emotion, which is so many of these things that we're talking about, it's really the emotional impact of um, existing in this World in general, the food world in specific. And women are often criticized for being too emotional. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite things that you said is like, ambivalence is not a virtue, Mm -hmm. right? Not being emotional actually is not something that we should aim for. Yeah. Although we're people in general, women often are criticized um, for their emotions. So, what do you think the power of emotion is.
3: I think um twofold. One, if you are able to feel your emotions deeply, you better understand yourself. Like the problem what with, with Um, what took me so long to even figure out I wanted to get into food is I was suppressing all of that emotion. I could feel it like I don't like this but I was so, it was so far down because I wasn't letting myself really think about it because I was taught especially in a business setting like don't cry Um, once I cried at work and oh my god I think I like all the consultants and my managers and the partners all pulled me aside at some point the next few days and was like I'm just gonna give you some advice don't cry on the job like that like you know like in the hallway some sort of Thing and so it was like drilled in my head. You you don't show emotion. Everything's fine. And so it took me a really long time to figure out what I didn't like. I stayed in a a really shitty job, not my management consulting one. Or ironically, after I left Columbia Business School, I went to a restaurant consulting gig and it was awful. And like I was miserable and I suppressed all of it because I was like, this is a good job. And finally one day it just broke and then I I was like I quit. Like you know, and it shouldn't be like that. Like it. I could have handled it much healthier if I had been more in tune with my emotions. Um, but I think also expressing your emotions outwardly is a good thing. Um, obviously there's some context where it's like not great, but um, for the most part, I think if you can express your emotion to your employees, to your colleagues, then they feel that their emotions are valid too. Um, And I think especially as a leader in a food business where there's just a lot of emotions involved and you're working (laughs) late at night, like to, to show them that like you can be stressed and still deal with, you know, work. You can be going through a divorce and like you're having the worst time of your life and still make it through service because of the emotional support that your, you know, your peers are giving you. I think that's like a really good trait that we should be cultivating.
2: So I want to talk about um, your food a little bit. So we're going to take a, a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the really beautiful creations because we're talking a lot about emotion and the underpinning of your food and how um, how you sort of got here. But when we come back, I want to talk about the, your beautiful plating and the concepts behind the dishes and the food that you've cooked and loved and how you bring um, AR and VR to the table. So uh, we're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna be back with Jenny Dorsey.
0: This program is brought to you by Jewel Sous my name is Katie Mosman-Wadler. I'm the executive director of HRN and a real life Jewel user. I use Joule to help me host the most delicious dinner parties. When you cook with Joule, there's zero guesswork. So steak, chicken, seafood, turkey, vegetables, and eggs all come out exactly the way you like them. The Parrot app is super intuitive and has a great visual doneness guide. Jewel is awesome for prepping many perfect portions making it easy to cook for a crowd, and it's hands-free so you can focus on entertaining while Jewel does the work. And pro tip, Jewel is also great for travel. I throw mine in my suitcase if I'm headed to a rental house with any kind of uncertain kitchen. From perfect steak to juicy, tender Thanksgiving turkey, Jewel makes the best food you've ever tasted. Just be sure to save some room for mini jars of pumpkin pie. Jewel, perfect food, every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewels and use code HRN, as in Heritage Radio Network, to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code
2: HRN. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, your host on Speaking Broadly at Heritage Radio Network. And I have with me Jenny Dorsey, who is an extraordinary cook, storyteller, and really explores emotion in her food. And I just I want to hear more about your food. So, so you know, so so often, um, I'm so captivated by the the person I forget. the reason they're in the chair actually is, Food. Uh, so you worked at a, a high-end restaurants, and then you did Wednesdays, which is a, a pop-up in your apartment with your husband, who I guess is a great mix- mixologist. Um, <laughs> Bravo to him. Tell me what propelled you to do the, the pop-up, and just tell me about like how you conceptualize your dishes.
3: Yeah, um, so Wednesdays, uh, I started with my husband uh, in January 2014, which is the weirdest. It's like so many years now. But um, the idea was we don't really know much about the people um, that we're going to school with at the time. Um, so how, how do we change that? You know, we're tired of this like library conversations or short things in the hallway. Um, and naturally, I was working at a restaurant uh, then I was actually doing my externship at Market Table. So like literally first job in a restaurant. And uh, it was fun. I had a really good time at Market Table. It was a good learning environment, but it was like, I couldn't be creative. So my husband's idea was, why don't you make all the food? And then I will make the drink. <laughs> (laughs) and he had never made a single drink before the first Wednesday's event so it didn't go that great. I mean, it was really strong so I guess no one noticed at the end of the night but it was not a well-balanced cocktail but now he's (laughs) really, really good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And, like I think there was just something in the air like when we first, we had eight people over for dinner at our apartment. It was like a tiny little one bedroom in in Chelsea. We just fit like an eight foot table in there. Everyone's like kind of crammed in. We had their lights on, like not romantic atmosphere at all. Um, But people were having like a, well, we curated the audience a little bit, but people were having a really good time. Like people just, they didn't know each other, um, but we had thought about who would like each other and they were having like kind of deep diving into these conversations we didn't anticipate. And uh, we did a a series of beta dinners for the first month. And by the end of the month, we had started getting people we didn't know um, through friends of friends or whatever. And we're like, hey, I think I think we're kind of onto something. And the next month we started getting visitors from like Australia. Wow. And I was like, really? Like you have three days in New York? You decided to come here? It was like such a compliment. Um, But I think like I noticed that, you know, even if people didn't explicitly say it, they were looking for something. I think we all are looking for that connection. And um, I wanted to do that for them. Um so Wednesdays eventually moved out of our home, thankfully. <laughs> um and to different venues. And so we've done events from as small as eight to as big as a hundred, but I think our sweet spot's kind of in that thirty to forty range. Um where people can still be in smaller groups, um, usually tables of eight, um, and have a good conversation and we can do, you know, interesting things where we make people, for instance, chain, get up and change seats in the middle of the dinner. Or um, we'll use, instead of using their names as name cards, um, we'll actually ask them questions, probing questions like, uh, are you in the job that you want? And if not, how are you getting there? And that's their name card. So in order to find your seat, you now know a little bit more about everyone else. Um, I love (laughs) that. uh, Which is fascinating. It's so fascinating what people write. Um, Another one of the questions we always use is, uh, what's your biggest failure and how has it motivated you? And you would be shocked at what people write and the few people who say they've never failed (laughs) we we like don't let them come because (laughs) that's just not the right attitude but you know it's really it's just you get to know people like very immediately Um, and I think that kind of makes it brings down the barriers and people start uh,
2: talking a lot more Um, And and for you is it about the food or is it about what you just said it's actually about the connection and the revealing qualities of the people who actually you know that you have to be willing to go there to be at that table
3: yeah I think it's it's like grown into i used to think you know because I never cooked for people like my food, just the act of me cooking at all was like so vulnerable. So I felt like it kind of went hand in hand. Um, but I, as I became more comfortable as with my food and as a chef, I realized a, a big part of why I started um, the studio is I felt like I wasn't actually ho- you know holding up my end of the bargain. Everyone, I wanted everyone else to come and be vulnerable and I was making food that tasted good but it was a little safe. Um, I was making food that like sometimes it would add a title that was A little different, but like it wasn't really pushing people's boundaries. I mean, sure, maybe they haven't had beef tongue before, but like just making someone eat offals is not (laughs) mind-bending stuff. Um, And, you know, or we'll do stuff with bugs, and that's a lot of fun. But, like, beyond the surface level, like, how was I really getting them to uncover more about themselves and each other? And so, um, at the beginning of this year, we had a a pop-up for 42 um, in Williamsburg, and I think that was, like, one of those... There's always, like, one moment where, after the dinner, by all means, very successful dinner, I just looked at all the like empty plates and the food and the people and I was like this isn't this, is, this is not this is not right you know like something's wrong we've grown our meal like by all means the press love doesn't all this stuff but something wasn't right I thought like my food was not right the drinks weren't right like everything was everything was wrong I think that was a little dramatic but um and that really pushed me to be like what about my food do I actually want to express here like what about what I'm thinking and what about vulnerability and all these topics that I care about should I be expressing through my food in a more clear and a more succinct way um so the rest of this year has really been like developing fewer dishes at a time um sometimes I think I was just trying to churn out plates um and really thinking about like layers of symbolism behind each ingredient or the techniques or really like you know taking the time to consider, like, should it be with this ingredient, or perhaps I should present it in a different plating style, or whatever it may be. And I think that has, that has made me feel a a lot better about my work. But also, I think that resonates with people who are coming um, to like Asian America, for instance, they understand that everything, it's not just about tasting good, everything should
2: taste good, but there's something more that they can find if they want to. So, talking about something more they could find brings us to the ARVR because you had people put on goggles yep. and you, uh, had, you were speaking in poetry. I don't know how you say that, but <laughs> you were, um, reading your own poems and they were experiencing this dinner for themselves, which I thought was so interesting because in fact, the notion of, uh, some kind of AR through meal is something I don't like the idea of mm-hmm. because I want to be there and have that conversation with somebody else. But I thought you made an extraordinary point about actually trying to have the opposite. Yeah. Right. To having a moment to yourself and experiencing that meal. So how did you first get involved in the augmented reality, virtual reality area?
3: Um, So another one of those, I think weird serendipitous moments, I was struggling with all of this. um, Like what do I do with my life and my food? Um, And I went to acupuncture and I literally, I woke up in the acupuncture chair and I was like, I should do augmented and virtual reality. I have no idea where that came from. I had no idea what I was talking about. I ran home and I told my husband and he was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I didn't really know how the pieces fit together. I just just was like, this is what I have to do. So I started talking to a lot of people um, in the AR, VR world, just kind of like learning what was possible, what people were doing. At the, f- uh, at the onset, I actually really wanted to do stuff, more stuff with holograms and food, mm-hmm. but the technology is really... The technology is there if you have millions of dollars, which I do not have at my disposal. Um, so I walked back from uh, that idea, and then I was like, "What do I do? Is VR the right thing?" I did kind of a basic 360 VR project in Nicaragua, where we um, did a three-course meal and drinks, and each of the courses had to do with like a agricultural staple, so like coffee. So you put on the headset, and then you you see the coffee cherries, and then you see the workers picking them, and all that stuff. And that was fine, but I just it was like, I feel like I'm really not using this medium to the best it can be. Um, what is actually the point of this medium? Um, what makes this VR experience in this dining experience worthwhile and like special versus just kind of a shtick. Um, and I think with Asian in America, I've, I feel really good in the fact that the VR experience was, you know, carefully thought out. I had a Tilt Brush artist draw all of how the dish actually comes together. So what is like, a Tilt
2: Brush artist?
3: Oh, I'm sorry. So a Tilt Brush is um, a virtual reality drawing platform. So you can essentially draw in 3D space. So um, if you weren't just watching in a stationary position, which you are and in the experience so that people aren't walking around. But if you have like the regular Tilt uh, uh, like a six degrees of freedom headset so a headset where you can actually move around in space you could walk through a painting so for instance you see till brush artists recreating like um monet's or starry night and you can actually walk through starry night and look at all the buildings um, and look at the sky and like Get behind the moon, um, so cool stuff like that, um, where it feels
2: very like you know you're you're very ingrained in the scene itself. Did you work um, in order to create the experience that you had for the dinner? Did you work with an AR team? Like, how does that come together?
3: Yeah, so um, I I started with this idea. I was like, I want a tilt brush artist to draw this um these dishes and how it comes together and i want to overlay audio on top of it so i found the tilt brush artist first um her name's karen vanderpool she's in texas she's wonderful um and then i was like okay karen needs to be able to get her piece off of tilt brush into uh Unity, which is a it's a it's an engine where you develop VR for um, for for shortness' sake, um, and somehow add like an audio component to it. So I had a developer team go ahead and do that for her. Um, so basically pulling it off one platform and putting it into another and then compressing it down to a video file that could be played on the headsets or on YouTube
2: and Vimeo. And then how did you get the headsets? Like, It just seems like there's so many obstacles, but I think (laughs) that, um, I don't know, it seemed like a really cool thing to experiment with. So uh, how did you get the headsets?
3: Um, So there's a lot of different headsets that we could uh, potentially use. Um, We're currently using the Oculus Go, which is an untethered... uh, three degrees of freedom headset where you can't move around in space, um, but you also don't have tons of wires coming off your head. So that's good. Um, we could also technically play it on something like the Daydream or the Samsung VR, which are mobile uh, based VR. So you have the phone and then that gives you the feeling of virtual reality because of the way they actually play the video. It looks like a side by side video and it, just, it gives you that feeling. But the resolution on those is like a lot lower than what you can experience um, in an in, in Oculus Go. So we opted for the Go, which actually just came out March, April of this year. So it's been that was a challenge just in finding a place that you could rent it from Mm -hmm. in an inexpensive way and procuring that many of them. Our events aren't that big. Uh, We try to keep them to under twenty five, but getting twenty five headsets somehow has been really challenging. Um, We've been trying to get sponsorship from you know Oculus, and that's been a challenge. Um, So yeah, there's definitely been like all these things along the way that have been really hard. At some point, we couldn't figure out how to render the tilt brush out of the platform, and it was, like, crashing everyone's computer. And I was – this was, like, two weeks before the event. I was, like, almost in tears. I was, like, oh, my God. This is, like, this is not going to work. And I got an email from my developer, Alan, like, one morning. I was, like, got it. And I was, like, oh, my God. (laughs) Thank
2: heavens. Um, So it's been, yeah, a lot of parts. (laughs) What do you see as the future of VR and food?
3: Um, I think, realistically, we're – starting is as it gets less expensive to use the technology, the first thing that you're gonna see is like entertainment stuff, especially sponsored entertainment, which I think we're already seeing, especially Likewise. with alcohol. Um, so for instance, I think I remember, it was like Grey Goose or one of the vodka brands, they had like a VR experience that they had on like a little mobile trailer. Um, a couple other bars, one in Chicago, I believe, and one in London, also have a VR experience with a Scotch brand. I think both of them are Macallan, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so I think you're gonna see a lot more of that, just because it's it's relatively low-hanging fruit, and it's going to be less expensive to produce. Um, do you think people
2: forward. will engage, or do you think they're like, oh, you know, you're shilling, so...
3: I. Th- Yeah, I think it's right now people engage purely because it's a spectacle. They don't, they haven't tried VR before, so they want to like play with it. But I think at some point, as you know, a bigger majority of the mass market have experienced VR at some point, they're going to be like, no, no, thank you, because it's kind of like movies. You know, you don't go run to the movies and watch every single one of them because it's not like a novelty anymore. You wait and you think about which movie you want to watch. And I think with VR, it's going to be the same. People are going to start being much more picky about the content they're going to watch and also about like if they do an okay with that content interrupting their whatever it's their cocktail time or their dinner time because for people who care about food like that is an important time and if VR is done poorly like it really it just like messes up the vibe it throws off the evening and then that's a Saturday night you can't have back
2: um, I was wondering about that with your food and the you know you're serving food but you're also serving content through the mm-hmm. VR did you feel like it it was the feedback that it inhibited people's like pleasure in the food um, I for Asian America, I think people that
3: people like the fact that in VR they actually watch essentially the food get prepared kind of and then when they take off the headset they see that dish so it i think it complements nicely what they see and then what they get and because they understand so much more about what they're eating like that i think actually makes the eating experience more enjoyable they're like oh i really like this chrysanthemum maze you know never before did I actually have guests really be able to regurgitate ingredients back to me (laughs) after like three courses later um, because they actually remembered it so clearly Mm -hmm. so I think that has been really good Um, I do think that Naturally, because people are still kind of getting used to VR, especially for the first VR course, which is course number two, there's a little bit of like, this is clunky, I'm uncomfortable, I'm at a table, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's a, there's friction there. But I, I like to think and the responses we've received so far is by the end, people feel comfortable enough that it's like not getting in their way.
2: I thought it was interesting that you said that nobody took off their headset. Yeah, I mean, people will, so
3: we have them take them
2: on and off. So like, but you they know. But didn't, they didn't interrupt the experience as it was happening be like, ugh, you know, this is so annoying. Can, right, where, I, where's my food?
3: Yeah, exactly. Nobody was like, I, I just don't want to be part of it anymore, which I thought was really cool. I also think um, just watching the reactions of the crowd has been really interesting. i mentioned this earlier, but, you know, being an introvert myself, even though I really want to have these like deep conversations with people, over the span of, you know, three hours that I'm eating my food. Usually at a communal dining experience like ours, you just kind of get tired. You mm-hmm. get a little fatigued and then you start kind of checking out. And usually what I've seen from the kitchen is that one or two more dominant personalities, extroverts, will usually kind of start taking over the table. And I think VR has really, even the playing field that way, is that because everybody gets a little bit of a solitary experience, when they come out, usually there's a slight delay because people put on the headsets at the same time, but maybe not start the video at the same time. You'll see like everyone is just really quiet and they're waiting patiently for other people to come out of their headsets they are not on their phones they're just sitting there silently and thinking which i've never seen before the first time it happened i was like what is going on everyone all my staff commented on it was like it was just a it was weird and it kind of extraordinary um but i think then people like had a second then once everyone was out of vr people were like diving back into the conversation with like rigor um so I think, yeah, it's there's I, there's more to explore there, but I think that's been very interesting just to see like what you can do for intro, introverts in a group setting by giving them
2: a little bit more space. I, I absolutely have noticed that pattern, right? That everybody's really animated to begin with and then some people pull back because that's just like they're kind of done yeah and some people are like this is their time to zoom forward because <laughs> yes. it's like oh more room for me yep um so at the end of each show i ask my guest to pay it forward a woman in food hospitality who you really admire who's inspired you who would that person be for you oh um there's a lot
3: but i want to shout out to my former um the cdc Atera, who i used to work with um yelena she also used to be the executive chef at neat um full name uh, Yelena Del Mundo. Um, and she's amazing. She had a kid last year um, and has been taking a little break from the culinary industry, but I think I learned so much from her in terms of how to lead a kitchen as a woman and lead with a distinct like, feminine flair, but it doesn't mean that you weren't being tough. I mean, Yelena definitely, she didn't yell at me, but sternly told me I was doing things wrong or I was being sloppy because I was and I wasn't fast enough, whatever. Like, I heard all of that, but there was... A way in which she did it that she can show you that she cared and she will listen if you're I was having a bad day and I was like crying to her in the kitchen. And she was like, that's OK. Just take your five minutes in the walk in and come back. Like I just learned a lot about like I can be a female. I can be proud of, you know, my own personality and use that to my advantage when leading others so they feel
2: important, too. And with that beautiful thought, that's today's Speaking Broadly. Thank you so much, Jenny, for um, Zooming over here. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And if people want to sign up for a, one of your meals or want to follow you on Instagram, um, how can they find you? Um, yeah, so you can always find me Instagram, Facebook,
3: and Twitter. I'm at at Chef Jenny Dorsey um, and my nonprofit is called Studio Atao, A-T-A-O. So you can find that on at Studio Atal. We have one uh, event coming up Asian in America at the Museum of Chinese in America, but unfortunately it is sold out. But um, please sign up for our mailing list um, at the Studio Atao website
2: for more details. That's great. And, you guys know where to find me, um, at FW Scout on Instagram and Twitter. As always, welcome your feedback, suggestions on great guests to have. And I want to thank uh, my engineer today, Jeep Paul, and the inimitable Nita Medvitskaya. Did I get your name right? That's good, because I, I have a talent for mangling <laughs> names. So that's it for today's show. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.
1: Have a great week.